as a as a church, we've been walking through the book of John for the last month or so, and um, said this last week, we are now officially at the point in walking through the book of John that I can't rehash every sermon uh, that I've done before. So I'm going to trust you guys are faithful about keeping up with it if you, if you haven't been here and listening in. But um, just to recap you from the last week, we started off last week, uh, we, we, we left off last week with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, uh, where he was baptized by John the Baptist. Again, John the Baptist is different than the author of the Gospel of John. And, uh, and we saw in the testimony of John the Baptist that Jesus was revealed to be both God's Son and our Lamb, that He is our sacrificial Lamb, that God sent Him to bear our sins and be our sacrifice. And so we, um, we saw that last week, that, that this is why Jesus came to reveal God's glory by taking our sins upon His back. And we're going to see this week, as Jesus continues to gather to Himself a people and gathers to Himself um, followers, uh, that this continues to come out, this fact that God sent Him to bear our sins. And we're going to see this with increasing, increasing burden of the Gospel of John is to put this upon us. And so I'm going to pray one more time, and then we will get into God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. Pray that um, You would give us eyes to see. Father, we want to see you. We want to see you. We want the scales to be removed. We don't want to be blind. Your son is right in front of us this morning. So would you help us to see him in all of his glory? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, show of hands, how many of you have ever met your hero? Yes, no? Oh, good. At least one of you, at least one or two of you will probably have a similar experience to this. I've I've met two of my heroes. Um, One was a a man uh, who's well-known. Some of you would know him. He's written a bunch of books, and so I'm not going to embarrass myself further by telling you how I met him. But he was speaking at my college chapel, and so I I had uh, obviously read a couple of his books, and I, I, um, and so to prepare, even for, to prepare for the sermon, I was reading one of his books. And so I, uh, I, I went down to just meet him afterwards. And some of you guys know this. I, I, I sometimes lean probably too much on my sense of humor. So I thought I'd be able to crack a joke and make this guy laugh. And I said, thank you for your ministry. And he's like, thank you. And then I, I was leaning too much on my personality. This is one of those times where I really wish I would have practiced in front of the mirror. And like three or five seconds of just silence. And then he's like, Okay, then, and went on to the next person behind me who engaged him with something more interesting. Another time I met one of my heroes, not, I don't think this guy's ever, well, maybe he's written a book, I don't know. Uh, we were at a, at a concert in Chicago, and the north side of Chicago, this great theater, and I was with uh, my friends Tyler and Kevin, and my friend Kevin was from around the, the region where this particular person was from, and so we went up to meet him afterwards and, you know, take a picture as you do with, you know, rock stars, and, uh, and, and my friend Kevin uh, thought he knew people who knew this guy, so he's trying to build rapport and trying to trying to and he's like do do you know so and so and this person said no i i I have no idea what you're talking about and my friend kevin was like uh and then my other friend was like well you'll never forget me he said who are you tyler and then he walked off (laughs) when we meet when we meet our heroes um it is not always what it is cracked up to be and sometimes uh, sometimes it's more than what we expect. And today in our, uh, our text for this morning, we're going to see that Jesus meets five people, four stories and five people that Jesus meets. 
And we're, we're going to see this morning who Jesus meets, and we're going to talk about how Jesus meets them. So who, who, who they are and what, what it looks like that they meet, and then we're going to try to kind of think about all of them together and see what lessons we can learn from meeting all of them together, who Jesus meets and how Jesus meets. We start off our text in, in John 1, 35, says this. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we see in this first story that, there, that John the Baptist has two disciples, one, one of whom is Andrew, and the other is probably the author of the Gospel of John. And so John the Baptist, again, John and John the Baptist know each other, but two different people. Um, John the Baptist uh, sees Jesus going by. And I actually take this to be the same incident that we talked about last week, just from a different perspective. And so um, this is talking about when John the Baptist said last week, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, and he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, so we saw last week how that was in dialogue, and we saw how that was kind of part of John's overall witness. And so when verse 35 says, Behold the Lamb of God, it is just reminding us of what we saw earlier in the text. And so when John the Baptist says, Behold, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we, he says that in front of two of his disciples, Andrew and and the author of the Gospel of John. And so these two disciples hear their mentor, their hero, their, uh, their, their uh, person who's been very formative in their life say, there goes the Lamb of God. So they say, well, we should take him at his word. And so they follow him. And I love, I love how this dialogue goes, because Jesus, you can just imagine two fishermen uh, who are, you know, from Galilee, so they're a little bit rough and tumble, and they're following Jesus on a rural country road. If it was like most of us, we would turn around and like see the shadows and try to move faster. But Jesus engages them, and Jesus says, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? We talked about this bit at our small group uh, this past week. And what do they answer? They don't actually answer the question. They're like, um, uh, uh, Rabbi. Yeah, we'll go with Rabbi. <laughs> and they say, "Where? What a strange question, by the way. Where are you staying? What's your address? Where do you live? Yeah, very strange. But Jesus, very patient, very patient, says, Come, and you will see. And Jesus invites them in. They see that Jesus is the rabbi, the the teacher of the law, the the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they they, Jesus invites them, come and you will see. This is probably the first time Jesus has met Andrew and the author of the Gospel of John. And so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed. And that word could also be translated as abide. Same word from John 15. We'll come back to that. Come and you will see. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. In this, in this story, we see that there, there are two characters that meet Jesus, 
And both are changed in different ways. Both are changed in different ways. So the author of the Gospel of John, if you know the, the other stories of, the, of the, the other synoptic Gospels, you know that John, um, one time, he, he wanted, he's a very ambitious man. And so he wants to sit at the right hand of the Father and his, uh, of the Son and his kingdom. But he's a little bit afraid to ask for that himself. So he gets his mom to, uh, not a strategy I recommend, to go and see if Jesus will answer yes to his mom. And, uh, of course, you know, Jesus says, do you think they're really able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they say, yes. She says, you don't know what you're saying. But you, we can tell from that story and from other stories in the synoptics that the author of the Gospel of John, John the son of Zebedee, is a very ambitious man. We might even say vainglorious, boisterous, that he is a man who, who is um, really wants to increase and improve, and you know, a little bit of hubris is in him. And yet, one of the most strange things when we read the Gospel of John, the Gospel, the, the biography that John, the son of Zebedee himself, wrote years later, probably after all the synoptics have been written, is he shows up so infrequently. There's, there's something, actually, we know that he was there for these events. How else would he know to write them down? And yet, he very rarely, except when it is necessary, puts himself in the spotlight. The author of the Gospel of John actually only shows up in three or four of the scenes of the Gospel of John, this being one of them. And that's because after having met Jesus, more and more, the time that he spent with him, more and more, he, I think, became more and more having the mentality of John the Baptist, that he must increase and I must decrease. And he began to see more and more that Jesus is the center, not himself. And more and more he increased in humility. This is the, this is the, the story of how John the Baptist is transformed. And the other story is of Andrew. And Andrew is also transformed. Um, because what we see in the next verse is that, uh, is that John goes out, or Andrew goes out and finds his brother, Simon. And we'll talk about that in a second. He says to him, we found the Messiah. And he brings him, except that word in verse 42 that says he brought him, is actually the same word that is used to describe dragging prisoners around. So how many of you have a brother that you want to drag around like a prisoner? Don't answer that. But I have several. And John or Andrew goes out and he finds his brother and he twists his arm and he just says, No, you gotta come with me. And he kind of he kind of maybe manipulates him a little bit and guilt trips him a little bit. That's a little bit of an elaboration, but he drags Peter along. And if you know the other gospels, you know that Peter is probably not the easiest person to have a conversation with, right? He kind of always has the right answer, and he always has something to say. We'll talk about that more in a second. And so imagine the courage that it took for Andrew to go out and grab hold of his brother and twist his arm and, and kind of maybe guilt trip him a little bit, but drag him in front of Jesus the Messiah. You see, when, when Andrew sees Jesus, and when he meets Jesus for who he is, he, he, he just can't help, but he wants to share that with other people. And it's to that story that we turn next. So we see in verse 41, it says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, 
we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ or the anointed one. And he brought him or dragged him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas or Kephas, which means Peter. So uh, Andrew goes out and he kind of arm twists his brother. He brings his brother before Jesus. And again, this scene is so strange because of what we know about Peter from the other gospels. Because Peter usually always has something to say, always has the right answer. Jesus, I will die for you. Even though all these other losers, they'll run and flee. I'll do it. And yet when he first meets Jesus, he doesn't say anything. He's dumbfounded. He's silenced when he sees the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was sent by God. He, can't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have words to articulate it. And Jesus gives him a new identity. In verse 42, he says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas or Cephas, which means Peter. And Peter meets Jesus. It's very similar to the, the next story. A, a man that probably, probably Peter and Andrew knew growing up but very different man, a man named Philip. says this in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So, Philip probably grew up knowing knowing Andrew and Peter, but they are very different people. Because Bethsaida, the town that they're from, was kind of a boom town. So it was a town that was on, on, on the Sea of Galilee, and it was in the Tetrarchy of uh, Philip, son of Herod. And, and so it's a, it was kind of, for a long time, a sleepy little uh, fishing village. And then when, uh, when Philip came into power, Philip poured a lot of money into the town, and he actually renamed it after one of the daughters of the emperor, Julia. And so suddenly, kind of overnight, Bethsaida became this boom town. It grew up. There's a whole new class of people that moved in. And this sleepy little tiny uh, fishing, Jewish fishing village became flooded with foreigners and flooded with extra money. And if you've ever lived a place like that, you know that it kind of becomes two cities, right? That there's, the, there, there's what we might call the urban poor or the, the working class. And then there's all the yuppies that move in. And Peter and Andrew are are with kind of the older group of people who probably lived in Bethsaida for generations. And Philip is a yuppie. He moved in there. And we we can tell that because his name is Philip. Philip is not a Hebrew name. It's not a Semitic name like like Simon is or like Andrew is. Philip is a Greek name. Philip is the name of of, of the father of Alexander the Great. And so Philip was probably a Jew, he's probably Jewish origin, but he probably was what we would call a Hellenistic Jew. He's a Jew who was ethnically Jewish, but culturally Greek. It was somebody that the the Jewish people of Galilee um, would have thought was kind of a traitor. And and Philip, uh, he he kind of, he doesn't have a problem being culturally Greek. He doesn't have a problem that this is who he is, that this is his background, that this is where he comes from. I love it. Later on in the gospel, after the resurrection of Christ, the disciples of Jesus, they all go fishing. Everyone goes fishing except for Philip. Philip is that one guy who says, you know, I'd rather just read a book. You guys can go without me. Uh, Philip doesn't because that's not who he is. He's probably more of a bureaucrat or a trader. Maybe he comes from money, but that's Philip is kind of a yuppie. 
we, we can tell he's probably a very shy person. Because when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't argue like we'll see Nathaniel does. He doesn't push back. He, he just follows him. He has very simple faith. He's probably an educated man again. And when Jesus says, follow me, he says, okay. And this very shy man, here's the transformation that happened for him. This, very, this man who's probably more given to quiet, more solitude, he's probably more of an introvert, gets a unnatural certainly for him, an unnatural confidence and eagerness to share the gospel. And we know that because of who he goes and talks to next, a man named Nathaniel. And we'll turn there next, starting in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what we see here is that Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. Now, I would love to know how, we don't know, but I would love to know how Philip and Nathaniel know each other. Because these two people could not be more different. Philip is a Hellenistic Jew, probably, uh, he, he's probably, you know, someone who's somewhat uh, he, he, more metropolitan. He's from, a, you know, a boom town, a city. And Nathaniel is from this town way out in the middle of nowhere called Cana. So when, Phil, when uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, it's very ironic. Because uh, Nathaniel himself is from Cana. Cana and Nazareth are two small towns that competed with one another for insignificance. It would be, it would be, if like someone from Dedham said, Holden, can anything good come out of Holden? I mean, these are, these are two towns that are in the middle of nowhere. Nobody goes through them. They're just way off the beaten path. And yet Nathaniel, he just he just is from out in the middle of nowhere. Unlike Philip, he is very proud of his Jewish heritage. He, he's, from, he's an Israelite. He, he relishes in that. If you know your Old Testament, you know that he has a name, Nathan. The, the Lord gives, God gives, Nathaniel. That's what his name means. He's, he's very proud of his Jewish heritage. He's, he, he is a man who's probably more rural, probably more blue-collar. He goes with Peter and uh, the boys fishing, and Nathaniel is a, he, he's very patriotic. He's very excited about where he comes from. This is, this is who he is. And, and somehow, in God's providence for us, these two people knew each other. We, we don't know how. We just know that they did. And Nathaniel, they're probably these two friends. You ever have a friend, maybe if you like to talk a lot, who doesn't, or vice versa? Um, Nathaniel is the one that talks a lot, and Philip is the one that listens, right? That's kind of their dynamic we're given to say, which is why it's so weird that Philip goes out and finds him. He says, we have found Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. And why Nathaniel is not afraid to push back. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And, and look at the supernatural boldness for Philip that he says. He says, come and see. And, and whereas Philip, we're, we're given to think, is probably a little bit more shy, that is not true of Nathaniel. When Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, that's not a compliment. We're like, oh, yeah, he's a very honest person. This is like saying he's honest to a fault. That he doesn't know how to not say the truth. That it would be nice if he would just, you know, maybe not lie, but keep his mouth shut. That's Nathaniel. And yet Jesus meets him where he's at. And Jesus invites him to follow him. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus said, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him. I, lo- I love this statement of Jesus. Because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? That's a parlor trick. That's nothing. You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Like all the others, Nathanael goes through a transformation. Nathanael is humbled. He comes to the end of himself, and he puts his faith in Christ. These are the four, four very different stories about five very different men that Jesus meets and calls to himself and bids him to come and, come and, and follow him and walk with him. And, and yet, for all these differences between these men, I, I think that we see some commonalities. And so, that's who he meets. Let's talk about how Jesus meets them. There's a number of commonalities amongst all of them. These are, as we said, they're five very different men. Five, five men who could pro- probably would not get along most of the time and, in the world, and yet because they follow Jesus, Jesus unites them. And that, friends, is how the church has always been. That is how the church has always been. We're drawn from different backgrounds, different families, different, uh, uh, different vocations, different parts of the country, and yet God brings us together and puts us into one people. That's how it's always been with the people of God. What we see here again and again, this, just this subtle use of the way that John uses language, is that seeing is believing. That again and again, faith is pictured as sight. Faith is pictured as sight. So we see in verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus. We see, uh, we see again that um, we, we see that they see Jesus. And for example, down below when um, in, start in verse, I lost, lost my train of thought. Um, in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And again, in verse 51, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That this idea of seeing, faith is sight, and, and to see God, to see Christ for who He truly is. That, that's what it means to see. And we talked about that all the way back at the beginning of the Gospel of John. All the way at the beginning of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world that gives light to the world, who illumines the world, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Which means if we can't see him, it's not a problem with the light, it's a problem with our own blindness. And yet, to see him in the Gospel of John is used as a metaphor for believing in him. 
to see Christ, to see him for who he is. That's what transforms them. That's what converts them. That's what saves them. So who is the Christ that they see? Who is the Christ who shows himself to them? Who is the Christ? Well, we see at least eight different, eight different truths about Christ in this passage. Eight different truths about Christ in this passage. Uh, one, he is both God and man. We see that very clearly, that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He has a zip code, he has a family, he's a human person, and yet he's also somehow divine. That he's the Lamb of God, the Son of God, that he's both God and man, that he's both 100% God and 100% man into one Savior. So he's incarnate, he's the incarnate Lord. We also see that he's the Lamb of God. We talked about this last week. That that language, Lamb of God, kind of summarizes all the Old Testament language about the sacrifice that Christ uh, gave for us. So Christ is the better Isaac that's been provided for us. Christ is the better Passover Lamb whose blood is put over our doorpost. Christ is the better scapegoat who takes our sin into the wilderness. Christ is the better uh, blood of the atonement who's sacrificed on our behalf. Christ is the better Lamb. He's the suffering servant. There goes the Lamb of God. Christ is also called the rabbi, the rabbi, the teacher of the law. That Jesus understands the law better than anybody else, and he applies and he teaches the law better than anybody else. Two different times he's called rabbi. It's emphasized for us. He's the rabbi. He's called the Messiah. He's the Messiah. The word Messiah just means anointed one. He's someone who's anointed for the purpose that God has for him. We saw that last week, how when he was baptized, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came down and descended upon him and rested upon him as a dove. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. We we see also that he is the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That he is the one who was prophesied for in the Old Testament. That he's the one who the Old Testament looked forward to and who the Old Testament encourages us to look to. He is the one that that Deuteronomy 18 wrote about. Jesus is the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. We also see that he is the Son of God. We've talked about this several times in the book of John already, that he he is in the beginning with God and he himself is God. And that he's called the only begotten God. That you and I can all be children of God, and that's a real thing, and yet the way that we're children of God is somewhat different than the way that He is. Because He is God. He's one, He's he's with God. He's also the King of Israel. The Israelites believed that there was going to be a king who came, a king who came and restored the kingdom of David, who's going to kick out the Roman oppressors. The, 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 they believe that he is going to be the one that would uh, come and he, he would establish the kingdom of Israel. And so he's the king of Israel. He is also called the son of man. The son of man. This title is taken from the book of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we see this. I saw in the night heavens, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So this is talking about the Messiah who's to come. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father on the throne, and was presented before him. 
And to him, to the Son of Man, to the Christ, the one who's going to come, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we see in Daniel 7 that there's this imagery where where there's one who comes and sits with God on his throne and reigns with God. It's an interpretation of Psalm 110. And Jesus says, that's me. It's not just I'm going to establish a kingdom here on earth. I'm going to establish an everlasting dominion that's going to reign forever over all the earth. He's the son of man. And finally, ninthly, this is for free, he is Jacob's ladder. This is why we read that from Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, you have this vision uh, that Jacob gets. He's fleeing away from his brother who wants to kill him. Again, I have brothers. I get it. And he's fleeing from him, and, and he's just tired and exhausted. And so he takes a nap, and, and, and he rests, and, and he gets this vision. And Jacob sees that there's a ladder going up to heaven. And ascending on the ladder and descending on the ladder, there are angels. And at the top of the ladder, he gets a vision of Yahweh. And Yahweh reiterates to him the covenant that he gave to Abraham, that he gave to Isaac, and now that he's giving to Jacob. But when Jesus says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he's not just saying that you're going to see Yahweh like like Jacob did. He's going to say that you are going to see that I am the ladder that connects heaven and earth that I am the mediator between heaven and earth. I am the way that the angels come down and go up. I am the one, because he is both God and man, because he establishes a new covenant, he is going to be the way that establishes heaven and uh, a connection between heaven and earth. We've, we say this with some frequency, but I think it's worth stressing. What saves Christians, what saves Christians is not the strength of their experience. When we see Christ, when we, when we see him and we experience him and we taste him and we see that he is good, praise God if that's a strong experience. But what saves us is not how strongly we see, it's who we see. What saves us is not the expression of our faith. What saves us is the object of our faith. Maybe when you put your faith in Christ, you prayed the sinner's prayer, or you walked down an aisle, or you raised your hand at VBS or camp, and praise God for that. I'm not opposed to any of that. But what saves you is not the fact that you did those things. What saves you is the person that you put your faith in. What saves us is not the strength of our faith. It's the object of your faith. You say, well, how strong does my faith have to be then? As strong as a mustard seed. Because with these five people, it's not like suddenly they understand everything. They just get bits and pieces. This is true particularly of Nathaniel. Nathaniel thinks Jesus is going to come back. He's going to establish, he's going to reign in Jerusalem. And I, that, that Roman soldier who cut me off once on the road, it's coming for him. Nathaniel has that mentality. He thinks that, that the kingdom of God is going to come and is going to be established in a very earthly way. And we know that when Nathaniel and all the rest of us see heaven and earth connected, it's when the king reigns from the cross. It's when the glory of God shines in the death of God. It's when Christ himself becomes our lamb and takes our sins upon himself and takes them into a far country and his blood is put over our doorpost. This is an incomplete vision and yet it is a vision that saves. And so it is for all of us that 
when we see Christ, we don't, it would be so great if we saw all the dots connect immediately and all the doubts are answered and all the questions that we have are, are uh, finished and we don't have any. It would be so great if there's no more progress to make after we become Christians. And yet, our vision is always incomplete. And in this life, we are always in the process of being renewed after his image. The book of 2 Corinthians says that we are uh, becoming uh, more like him degree by degree. And so, Christian, if you're here today and you're, you're like, I don't see it all, well, welcome to the club. Neither do any of these guys. You probably see better than they did. Definitely better than Peter. And, and yet what we see, for all the fact that it is an incomplete vision, and it absolutely is, this is a vision that transforms each of them in different ways. For each of them, this is a vision that changes them. They don't leave this meeting Jesus the same. So John is humbled. He backs out of the limelight over time. Andrew goes and grabs his brother and drags him before Jesus. Peter is dumbfounded, but he also has a change of identity. No longer is he known as Simon known as Peter or Kephas. Philip gets a supernatural boldness to go share the gospel. Nathaniel is humbled. Each one of them gets a change in their lives. Their sight of Christ, seeing Christ, changes them and transforms them. That to truly see Christ means that we will be transformed. You can't see him and not be transformed. You can't see him and not be changed. You can't be grafted into him and not bear fruit. This is a vision that is incomplete. It's a vision that changes us, and it's a vision that transforms us. See, when we meet Jesus, who we see will change everything. When we meet Jesus, when we see him, we see him for who he is and the scales fall off of our eyes. When we meet Jesus, who we see will change everything. It will transform everything. That we will, in a sense, die with him and will rise with him. When we meet Jesus, who we see will change everything for us. So let me apply this in a handful of ways. We are saved because we see or we believe in Jesus. We are saved because we see or we believe in Jesus. I wonder if you've done that today. I wonder if you have taken the step and you've taken the scales off your eyes. You've looked at him. He's right in front of you. I wonder if you've done that. If you've really truly put your faith in him. I I believe it is possible to go through your whole life. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you grew up uh, calling yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you had all the right answers. Maybe you went to Sunday school and Bible college. Maybe you could uh, rattle off and uh, say more verses from memory than I could, which is not hard. I believe it's possible to do all of that, to get all the gold stars and to still not see Jesus for who he is. I believe it is possible to rack up brownie point upon brownie point upon brownie point upon brownie point and to not see Jesus. To not taste and see that he is good. To not come to him if you are weary 
and heavy laden. I believe it is possible to think that following Jesus means pulling that burden on our back tighter and tighter and seeing how much we can carry up the hill. But what it means to see Jesus is that we lay our burdens down at the cross. That we come to him as those who are weary and heavy laden and we find rest. Have you seen Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you, the answer to that question is no. Well, praise God, you are in the right place. We would love to talk with you about what it means to see Jesus. And anyone who's a member here at this church, so anyone you think is looking like they're staying around for a members meeting, which everyone is going to, you just pull them aside and say, what does it mean to see Jesus? Because all of our members know the gospel and they would love to share that gospel with you. They would love to help you take the scales off your eyes to see Jesus. You say, well, how do I know? How, how do I know if I'm in that category of those who've really seen him and those who haven't? Well, has your life been changed? We see in all five of these cases and in every time where somebody meets Jesus is their life has changed and it's transformed. That They don't leave, leave the same that they met him. Whether that means they're humbled or they're given a confidence whether it means that they, uh, they are willing to assert themselves for the sake of the cross or, or they back out of the limelight. You can't meet Jesus and stay the same. And yet, it's not the transformation that saves us. I want to be clear about that. It's not the fact that you and I are changed and are transformed and are given a new identity and we, are, uh, we are, do have our sins washed away. It's not the fact that... that uh, it's not the fact that we do really grow as Christians that saves us. It's the person that we've put our faith in that saves us. It's not, it, it, the fact of the matter is that it, when you see Jesus, it transforms you, but the transformation is the fruit. It's not the, the being grafted into the vine. Jesus is the one who saves us. When, when we see him, that's what saves us. So if, you, if you're here today and you're wrestling, have I really seen him? Well, Look at your life. Has God grown you? Have you become a gentler person? Have you become a kinder person? Have you become a more humble person? The answer to those questions or others like them is yes. Uh, Then you can have confidence that you have seen him. Not because those things save you, but because it's Jesus who saves us. Have you seen Jesus? Uh, I would say this should instill a humility in us. A humility. Uh, there's kind of this play on words throughout this passage. Um, who finds who is kind of a question, right? So we see that several times uh, that people say, we've found the Messiah. So it says, verse 41, he being Andrew first found his brother Simon said to him, we found the Messiah. And Philip even says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. But verse 43 tells us Jesus found Philip. It's kind of this play on words. Who finds who in this passage? Who is the one who finds who? We see this very clearly spelled out and later on in the book of John, where John says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That, that we, it should instill a humility in us knowing that Jesus 
Not that we go out and find him, but that he has come and found us. That Jesus really did come to seek and to save the lost. And that includes me. Should instill a humility in us. When we meet Jesus, it's not a one and done thing. It's not, you know, like you you have it happen once. Like a one-time life-changing tourist destination. It's not like that. It's an ongoing relationship with him. We see here, and we see here that the that Peter or Andrew and John stay with Jesus. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And it says again in the next verse, he so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Well, that that staying is the same word for abide. And in the Gospel of John, that has a lot of significance. It's saying that they abided with him. They remained with him. They walked with him day in and day out. We see that, for example, we, we see that more clearly spelled out, the significance of that in John 15, which says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That once you meet Jesus, you don't, want to leave him. You you abide with him and you stay with him. In the Christian life, we do this by what we would call the disciplines of grace, the means of grace, where we day in and day out, we read the Bible and we try to get to know him. That's clearly what these, uh, all five of these men did. They, They were thoroughly saturated in scriptures. And we talked about that in our small group and promised them I was going to give, I promised Sophie and Trevor and, uh, Jordan and whoever else it was that said that. Was it you, Oliver? I don't remember. I promise I was going to give everybody credit, so I'm not plagiarizing. But one of the things that we pointed out in our small group, one of the things that we pointed out was that all of these men knew Scripture really well so that when they saw Jesus, they recognized him. I think oftentimes we think we know Jesus and we have an idea of who he is, but that's a Jesus after our own image, a Jesus according to our own imagination. A Jesus that likes all the same things that we do and who gets annoyed by all the same things that we get annoyed by. But if you want to abide with him, you want to walk with him, and you want to stay with him, that means you meet him on his turf. It means that you're getting to know him in his word and among his people, that you're committing yourself to reading the scriptures to praying. I do think we also see here that this faith, this vision that they get of Jesus is contagious. Do you notice that? How many of these went out and found somebody that they knew? I just, I love Andrew. Drags his brother along, binds him up and drags, oh, I love it. He brings him before, he just wants to put him in front of Jesus. And even Philip, who's a shy person, who's not a very forward person, who's not an extrovert, Philip goes out and finds his friend who tends to run people over. and says, come and see. Come and see. Christians, I, 
I think oftentimes we think that we want to pick and choose the fruits of the Spirit. We want to pick and choose the parts of being a Christian that we like and that we don't like. And for most of us, the things that we'll leave on the buffet table is evangelism. But the New Testament, and John also, have no definition of discipleship which does not include someone who makes disciples. And for all of us, all of us, once we've met Jesus, don't we want others to meet Jesus? I mean, if you've met this person who's changed everything for you and your life is different and, and the things that you used to love, you don't love anymore, and the things that you used to engage in, you don't engage anymore, why wouldn't you want people to know him? If he's changed everything for you, why can't he change everything for them? Christian, why wouldn't you want other people to know him? And yet, our job is to share the gospel. It's not to change their hearts. Because remember that play on words, we fi- who finds who? Well, Jesus is the one who's actually working behind the scenes. And so we just are faithful in our words. We just share the gospel and we let the Lord worry about the results and the answers. And I know that it's so hard because sometimes there's somebody that you just want to argue into the kingdom. You just really, you, you come up with this list of arguments and you just really want to, you know, and you just, they, they're not buying it. <laughs> you wish that they would. And you, sometimes that means we just have to trust that Jesus is the one who ultimately finds. So we're faithful to do what he's commanded us to do and yet we let him worry about the results. And then finally this. If our vision in this life is always incomplete... That means that each of us will see greater things than this. That each of us will see greater things than this. Which means not only that we'll grow as a Christian, but more and more, he'll make sense to us. In the ups and in the lows, on the mountains and in the valleys, when everything is going really well and when nothing is going well. When everything seems like it's clicking and nothing is going according to plan, we will see greater things than these. Which is why I would tell you, if you are on the precipice this morning, you're thinking, do I really want to take the scales off my eyes? Do I really want to let him change me and transform me? Do I really want to commit myself to this life of discipleship? I would say, come and see. Come and see. Because we will each see greater things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how kind you are to send your son to die on the cross for our sins, to raise him up from the grave. We thank you how kind you are to send your son to seek and to save the lost, which is each of us. And so, Father in heaven, I pray now that you would not let this word come back void, that you would not let this word remain on the bookshelf and get all dusty. But Father, would you use it in our lives to change us? Father, your son is right in front of us. We want to see him. Would you reinforce and clarify and help us to get a greater and greater picture each and every day as we respond to him in humble submission and surrender? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.